why is it that we always try to pretend that we're better off than we really are? I mean, think about it. Like, I always blame everything on social media, right? But this, this fascination started long before then. Sure, your social media feed is just your personal highlights. But this, this began long ago. But I'm betting in a room this size, there were at least a handful of couples who argued the whole way to church today. And then when you walked in, you're like, good morning, happy Easter, he's risen, right? Because you want to present that you're more put together, you're more, you've got it more together than you actually do. Uh, our younger, second youngest daughter, Gemma, loves uh, playing soccer, and so we always sign her up for the, the Clinton Youth Soccer League. And two years ago, uh, the, afternoons were all, the games were always in the afternoon, so it always timed up with uh, our twins' naps, which were one at the time. And so we tried one game of taking the whole family, and it was just a nightmare, right? And so we had to come up with a scenario of one week Corinne goes and one week I go. And there was one uh, week that I was heading out the door, and Corinne says, I got a surprise for you. And I said, what's the surprise? She said, well, if you open the back of the van, there's a brand new lawn chair, because I had been complaining about the lawn chairs I was sitting in to watch Jim's game, which means that my life isn't very hard and I complain about really trivial things, right? But so I opened the back and sure enough, there was this brand new lawn chair still uh, in its wrapping. It still had its tag on, which I thought, not that big a deal because you don't need a manual to work a lawn chair, correct? Sure. So we get to, we get to the fields, and, and, and the way the Clinton League is set up is it's just an open field. So there's multiple games going on at once. There's literally nowhere for you to hide. And on the side of, of each field, there are parents sitting in the lawn chairs. And so I send Jim out in the field, and I go get him, and then I start doing this. And this goes on for 30, 45, 60 seconds. And I start to get really embarrassed, and I'm like, this, I cannot get this thing open, right? And so I, get, I just wait a couple minutes, and then I try it again. There's got to be something in here, you know? I started seeing there was buttons here and buttons here, and then I, I start thinking, all right, now everybody's got to be looking at me at this point. Like, everybody has to be staring at me. So I try this little move. Hey, guys, let's go purple, right? You know, and I'm like, no, this has, there has to be something. And so I start checking everything, and sure enough, people start noticing, and there's a family over here, and, and the dad goes, hey, hey, man, you, you okay? I go, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I got it. Just, just enjoy the game, right? I wasn't okay, okay? But I just kept going at it, and finally a guy on my left goes, hey, you, you having some problems there? I said, no, I'm good. I'm good, you know? Just, just enjoy the game, and I'm not good. I'm not good in any way. Uh, I want to run and hide in the van. I, I don't know if Jim is even on the field at this point. I'm so embarrassed. And finally, two guys from FBN come up, and I can't lie to them. Right? And they're like, are you good? I'm like, I cannot get this thing open. I don't know how to work it. And I felt better when it took them at least 40 seconds. They didn't get it right away. Now, it didn't take them 25 minutes, right? But, it, but what happened was this strap right here hides a lock in place that if you lift up and then it just opens. And my brain could not figure that out for the first 15 minutes of the game or whatever. Now, it's silly and it's stupid and it's pointless that I would act like I had that together when I didn't. Right? And I think many of you can, can, can think of similar times where you tried to tell someone you were okay when you so clearly were not. Right? Something was clearly owning you. But there's a level to this that moves beyond humorous to, to someplace that I would call dangerous. Right? And, what I, and the argument I'm going to make is that there are too many of us posturing this morning as if we're good and we're okay and we undeniably are not. There's an astounding trend in recent human history. If you haven't tracked it, what you've missed is something that literally has no precedence in human history. Did you ever notice when you went through history class, whatever age or civilization you studied, there was always a religious factor to it. 
Greek mythology, Roman mythology, all the way, all the way to the back, uh, the cave drawings, all these different things. Because at any time of human history, you could find a religion or faith of some kind. But there is a rapid, and I mean rapid, change taking place. Gallup released a poll just a few days ago that for the first time in recorded history, less than one half of Americans belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Less than half for the first time in our history. The number of people who are saying that religion has no relevance to their life is, is shooting up too. And of course, everyone's trying to lay it at the feet of young people. It's those godless youth, right? But the reality is the decline is happening on every generation. Gallup has been doing this poll for 80 years, and for the first 70, a large majority of Americans belonged to some kind of house of faith. At the turn of the century, it was over 70%. In the last decade, this decline has, has, has become very rapid. And so what has happened? Well, it would be way too simple to lay at the feet of one thing. Right? And the decline doesn't apply to all places of faith. I was encouraged to read uh, that the more conservative, the more a, a denomination or church holds to uh, biblical inerrancy, the better off those churches are doing, while the mainline, more liberal ones are just, are just, just hemorrhaging. Right? But what, at the same time, as encouraged as that was, the trend of society as a whole is undeniable, and it's because we've adopted a worldview that is unprecedented in human history. My favorite television show is The Office. Okay, and my favorite scenes in all of the office are the scenes in the conference room in which the boss, Michael Scott, brings all the employees in, and he's always ranting and raving about something, making a big presentation. And the one in this particular episode was about body image. And he opens this presentation by saying, we are here because society has a problem. To which Jim, one of the employees, raised his hands, and he's like, you know what? You're always saying that there's something wrong with society. But have you ever thought maybe there's something wrong with you? To which Michael immediately replies, well, if it's me, then society made me that way. I love that line because it's the only time in the entire show that Jim has shut up. Because how do you come back to that? You have no answer for that. And this is, why, this is, one of, uh, this is my point. That was written 15 years ago by the writers as a joke. The writers knew it was a joke. The actors knew it was a joke. The audience knew it was a joke. We were all supposed to laugh at it. And since not only is it not a joke anymore, it's become the rallying cry of our age. Throughout human history, faith and religion was sought out because we knew something was wrong, and we knew deep down there was something wrong with us. Why is it that the good things I want to do, I have trouble doing, and the bad things I don't want to do, I keep falling into? Why is it that the people I love the most are the ones that I hurt the most? Why is it that I can't seem to get out of my own way and make so many bad decisions, have so many bad habits? We knew that we were a problem, but now... Well, now in postmodern, post-truth thinking, we have a new religion. It's the religion of self. Now the truth is in me. I'm the answer. I'm all I need. And if there's anything wrong with me, it's y'all's fault. It is. It's your problem, not mine. It's your job to accommodate me. It's your job to appreciate me. It's your job to approve of my decisions and support me. And this is... this. Change in mindset changes our view dramatically. We don't believe we need to seek any kind of higher being for help when we're the answer. We don't believe that we need God when we are a God. And the entire time, we're standing at the sideline of a soccer game, unable to open our chair, telling everyone that we've got it all together. So I've got a really sort of weird goal for Easter this year. My prayer, my goal this morning, is to convince you that you're not okay. That you're not you're not good. You don't have it all together. You aren't the answer. 
And while that may seem like a really dark goal, I promise you the intention is good because only once you understand that you're not okay does it allow the joyous truth of Easter to bring its entire joy, which is that because of the empty tomb of Jesus, he can make everything okay. And so to do this, I want to look at a passage describing the first Easter. And so grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 16. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, there's a black one in front of you. Get to page 905. And we're going to read this passage, and I'm going to zero in on a reaction we find that doesn't really vibe with what we think about Easter. And so I'm going to invite Jeff McIntosh forward to read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And if you would please, uh, if you're physically capable, join him in standing for the reading of God's word. Morning, Jeff. All right, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Thank you, Jeff. You guys have a seat. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truths that are, that are in it. We're thankful that in it we are told of this glorious moment, this glorious event of the resurrection. And God, as we look at what happened on that first Easter Sunday, as we look at the reactions around it, as we, as we unpack this passage, we pray that you would be the one who speaks, you would be the one who convicts and moves and encourages, and God, that you would get the glory from all this. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, what Jeff read for you is Mark's record of that first Easter Sunday, the one that we are still celebrating today. And he tells us in chapter 16 about this group of women who went to Jesus' tomb early. And here's why they were heading first thing Sunday morning to the tomb, because Jesus uh, died on the cross on a Friday. And that Friday just so happened to be a Sabbath day, which is a religious holiday for the Jews. And then, uh, um, or, sorry, Friday happened to be Passover. And then Saturday, the next day, was the Sabbath day in which no Jewish people were allowed to work. And so uh, the reason this is a problem is because every Jewish body uh, was meant to be anointed and prepared for burial. And since Jesus uh, was taken off the cross late on the Passover, uh, his body was rushed to the tomb, uh, and then nobody was allowed to do anything on Saturday. And so here we are on the third day, his body still hasn't been prepared for burial. And so these women are heading to the tomb to do that very thing. Now, not only would this be a somber deal, uh, because they've been mourning for a couple of days, it would also be kind of psychologically a scarring one because of just the violent nature of his death and what they're going to uncover and what they're going to have to deal with. And so they're kind of walking there just, just as the sun is coming up, preparing themselves for what they're going to find. But none of those two things is chief on their concern, according to Mark, because what they know um, as, as they followed Jesus' body to his burial, they know that a large, large stone was rolled in the front of the tomb. And they know they have no opportunity, no chance within themselves to move this stone. And so they're talking to each other on the way. How, what are, how are we going to do this? Right? When we get there, how, how are we going roll to roll the stone away? But when they get there, they see that the stone has already moved. And then they walk in, and they don't 
find the body of Jesus. So none of this, none of this is at all how they were expecting it. And then out of nowhere, an angel appears, right? And they're startled by this. And he tells them, hey, you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. So go and tell his disciples, which, you know, that that news is something we're still celebrating today, 2,000 years later. But look at their reaction again to all of this. Look at verse 8. They went out and ran from the tomb. Because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. First thing I want to point out to you this morning is that nobody saw this coming. These women were among the most devoted, most faithful to Jesus, and their expectation was to go and find the dead body of Jesus in the tomb. Their expectation was they're going to need help moving the stone. Their expectation is they're going to prepare his body for his final burial, and they weren't expecting any of this. Nobody was. But what's interesting to me is that they should have been, because he tried to tell them. Troy's going to throw a picture up on on the screen for you. This picture was taken October 1st, 1932. If you're like, man, that's a really grainy picture, I'll repeat the date to you, October 1st, 1932. Okay, it wasn't actually like iPhones and DSLR cameras back then, right? But this is game three of the 1932 World Series, and Babe Ruth is at bat in Wrigley Field against the Chicago Cubs. And this at bat sort of became one of the most historic at bats of Babe Ruth's career because of this gesture right here. Those, in the, those who were there that day say that, that during this at bat, Ruth pointed out just to the right of center field at, at something. They're not sure what. But legend grew that he was calling his shot, that he was saying, I'm going to hit a ball into those bleachers out there. And sure enough, two pitches later, Babe Ruth hit a home run in the exact direction he was pointing. Now, if he was calling a shot or not, who knows? Okay? He could have been saying hi to the pitcher. He could have been trash talking. He could have been waving the center field. Nobody knows. But it added to his legend, the the idea that somebody would be that good to say, I'm going to hit the ball there, and two pitches later, hit the ball right there. Now, I tell you that because I want you to look at verse 7 again. Did you notice what the angel told the women in verse 7? He says, you will see him there, and look at that last phrase, just as he told you. Just as he told you. In John chapter 2, Jesus stands up in front of an entire crowd of Jerusalem, and he says, you can tear this temple down, referring to his body, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, sure, that was imagery. That was an analogy. That one could go over your head, but ones like in Mark 8 can't. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 Uh, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and what? And rise after three days. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record times where Jesus called his shot, where he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise again. So why didn't they see it coming? Well, for starters... You got to remember at this time, it sure seemed like darkness had won. And boy, it often does in our world, doesn't it? You see, Jesus had represented hope to so many people who would never have it. He was seen as the Messiah, the answer to all their prayers. And why he was that, his rescue plan differed from theirs. His rescue plan included him suffering and torment and dying for their sins and rising again to offer eternal life. Their rescue plan was to skip all the suffering, to skip all the death, to march on Rome and set up Israel as the greatest nation in the world. And so every time he tried to tell them this, the reaction was terrible. In fact, we read Mark 8, 31. Look at the very next verse. Mark 8, 32. He spoke openly about this. Jesus was telling everyone about this is going to happen. And what did that, what happened? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Lord, this is not going to happen to you. I will not let this happen. We will not accept this. Why? Because they had placed all their hopes in Jesus. 
He couldn't die. He wasn't supposed to die because if he died, all their hopes were going to die with him. And so even when he told them, guys, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. It's why I came. I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'm going to rise again. They're already the place where they're not listening to him. And secondly, give him a little bit of credit. It's not like this happens. I want to address the skeptic in the room today who's listening. and you, the, the person who thinks it's laughable that I could believe that a dead person would rise again. And I want to tell you I agree with you. I don't think dead people can decide to not be dead anymore. It's not something that happens. And so I agree with you 99.9999999999% of the time. But I don't think Jesus was a normal person. His resurrection is the defining proof of his exclusivity and his uniqueness. There are a lot of things, there are a lot of ideas, there are a lot of people that you can put your faith in. Just one of them defeated his own grave, just one. And it was a feat so incredible, so exclusive, so unmatched that he even called his shot and they were still stunned when he did it. The second thing I want to point out to you is, is that I believe the reaction of these women is entirely appropriate. Entirely appropriate. Right? We, we, it seems that often Easter is like today, a really nice, sunny spring day. After a long, cold, hard winter, Easter seems like it's always, I mean, outside is beautiful this morning. And we come in and we sing of hope, we sing of joy, it's a big celebration, there's all these light pastel colors, and, and it should be all those things, but it's not exactly what we found in Mark 16, is it? I want you to look again at verse 8 to make sure you get this reaction. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them, and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. I took the time this week to look up all of those words in the original Greek because I wanted to make sure I knew what Mark was saying with this. And, and this is what I found, that these women fled from the tomb as if they were running from danger. That as they were running, that their bodies were literally shaking with fear. The word that, that we translate astonished, right? It, it's, the, it's a word that means a blended state of fear and amazement. The, the definition is this. I love it. It's a throwing of the mind from its normal state. You know what that means? That Jesus literally blew their minds. And then we're told that these feelings overwhelmed them. What that means, that word means, is that this fear and trembling possessed and controlled them. They're shaking, they're afraid, they're running, they're terrified. They can't, they can't do anything but feel these feelings. And the question is, why? Why that reaction? Right, these women obviously cared about Jesus. They stayed faithful to, his end, to the end. They were going to prepare his body for burial. They've been mourning his death for two whole days. Why wouldn't this met, be met with pure relief and pure joy and pure excitement? Well, think about it. These women were part of the group who traveled with Jesus and his disciples for the last three years. They were with him wherever he went. They ministered to him. They served them. They, they heard him teach. They had private conversations with him. They shared meals with him. They were genuinely friends with him. And sure, the entire time they knew that there was something different about him, something unique, but not like this. Not like this. This was a whole new level. Yes, they were expecting one thing that morning and found another. Yes, it would startle anyone to, to have an angel suddenly appear. But it's that act, that exclusive act of defeating death that goes so far beyond what they previously thought possible. That it leaves them in a state of fear and trembling and amazement and bewilderment because finally, after three years, they finally understand the fullness of who he is. And I think Mark wanted his readers to feel that too. It's why he records their reaction. Because you must understand who Jesus is. 
For these women, this realization would change everything. Jesus is someone who can even defeat death. And so in their minds, they begin replaying every interaction they have with him. Everything that he said now becomes a command from the highest authority in the universe. Right? Every one of his teachings, they're like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. Right? Now demands full acceptance. Every time they question him, every time they disagree with him, they know that they were wrong because he never is. They now realize that every sinful act, every selfish thought, every careless word, every wrong intention, they have done it to him. They've sinned against him as an affront to him. And they knew in that moment, they knew in that moment that there is a being powerful enough that nothing can hold him down, not even death, and that they were not equals to him. In fact, they owed him. They're in a position of debt to him. Think about the realization in a moment that you owe a great debt to a being so powerful he just walked out of his own grave. Of course you'd be trembling. Of course you'd be afraid. Because in this moment, these women understood something that we clearly need to understand. They were not okay. They were not okay. You know, there's this modern um, presentation of Jesus where he's portrayed as this hippie pacifist with flowing permed hair. That he just walked around telling everybody that they need to love each other. And somehow there was always nearby a baby lamb that he could pet, no matter where he was. And you need to know, there was a tenderness, there was a grace and a mercy of Jesus that is unmatched. But that's not the full picture. He stood up to kings and governors and authorities and rulers of the day that no one would ever dare cross. And he never even flinched. He knocked an entire legion of Roman soldiers on the ground simply by, by identifying himself, by speaking. He told illnesses and infirmities and storms they weren't allowed to be around anymore, and they fled at his command. He stared death in the face, took every blow it had, suffered an immense torment and excruciating pain, and three days later walked out of his own grave as if to say, is that all you have? Because when you come to the realization of who he really is, you discover there's not a being in the universe that you should fear more than you fear Jesus Christ. Because everything began with him, everything will end with him, and, every, and your eternity will ride on him. First Peter tells us that he is either your cornerstone or your stumbling block. And what that means is that he will be the reason you go to heaven because you have trusted and in, in, in placed your faith and trust in him and him exclusively. Or he will be the one you trip over on your way to hell because you never put your faith in him. Either way, everything revolves around him. What do we do with this? Because why the reaction of the women were appropriate, I don't think it was complete. And so how do I want us to respond to this? Number one, we need to come to the realization of who we are. You're not okay. You're not. You're not good. You're not the answer. You don't have it all together. And that shouldn't be shocking. That simply just makes you like every other human who's ever lived. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 23 says, There is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so to put the weight of your eternity, to put the weight of your salvation, to put the revealing of truth and the final purpose exclusively on your shoulders, it's setting yourself up for failure. It's giving you a task that you cannot bear because you're not the center of the universe. You're not God. And instead of being offended by that, why don't you be relieved by it? Because a worldview with you at the center sounds intriguing, but you quickly realize how much emptiness there is in that. Most important self-realization that we all need to do is not that we aren't God, but actually that we owe God. 
In our sin, we have rebelled against him. In our selfishness, we've tried to take his place. And because of that, we all owe uh, the God who created us a debt that we cannot pay. Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are a sinner. And you owe God. And due to your sin, you will die. I've never heard more talk about death rates than I have in the last 14 months. But guess what? The death rate for, the, for humanity, the death rate for human condition is still at 100%. You will die. And we know this to be true, and yet we try to live our lives every day as if it's not possible. The worst than the fact that we're going to die is that if our debt to God isn't paid, we face an eternal death. And what's even worse is that we can't pay this debt. There's nothing I can do to erase the sin I've already committed. But it's why Romans 6 says here that the gift of God, it's a gift The gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift, not something that I earn, and it comes exclusively through Jesus Christ. So you must come to the realization of who you are, and then you must come to the realization of who he is. Who is Jesus? Well, I'll let the Bible in Colossians 1 answer that. Because it tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Jesus Christ is everything that I am not. He is eternal, I am mortal. He is perfect, I am flawed. He is sinless, and I am a sinner. He is all-powerful, and I am weak and limited. He is God, and I am not, and he reigns above all, and despite all that, he still came for us. He took on, in an act of amazing humility, he took on human form. He lived in our flesh. He faced all our limitations, all our temptations, and all our struggles, and never one time did he sin. So that when he went to that cross, he wasn't dying for anything he had done wrong. He died to pay the price for the sins of any who would believe in him. Colossians continues, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And if you're wondering this morning, right, if you're wondering why we can have such confidence that Jesus really is these things, why, why I believe this so deeply in my soul, why the people who call FBN home believe this so deeply in their souls, how we can know that Jesus really is different, how he really is God, how he really is the answer. When others have made similar claims to me, it's incredibly simple. It's inc- I couldn't make it more simple. I could go today to the grave sites of, the fu- of every funeral I've ever preached and their body is still there. I can go to the burial sites of my loved ones that have gone before me because they have burial sites. I can get on a plane today and find elaborate tombs where those like Confucius and Muhammad and Buddha and more are buried. And guess what? Their bodies are still there. But you cannot go today and find the, bear, the final burial place of Jesus because it does not exist. That is the line in the sand. That is the game changer. That is what no one else can match. There are a litany of people who spoke a good game, who got people worked up and started a movement. But the list of those who then defeated their own death begins and ends with him. He's the list. You need to come to the realization of who Jesus is, and there is no one like him. And then lastly, put all of your hope in the one who defeated death. 
And those two realizations are huge, right? Number one, that you're a sinner. And number two, that he's God and there's no one like him. The response to that, the only response to that, is to put zero trust in you and all your trust in him. John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to God, the only way to life, the only way to truth, the only way to hope, the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you how glad I am that you're here this morning. It's, 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 it's humbling, it's an honor that you would grace us with your presence. We're excited you're here, but you need to know being at church has done absolutely nothing to get you closer to heaven today. Nothing. Doing good things is something that we should all strive for, right? Those aren't bad things, but each good work you do does absolutely nothing to get you closer to heaven. Because it's not a point system. There's not a scale that you can tip in your favor. Your baptism as a baby, your parents' faith, going to church when you're younger, none of these things can save you. None of these can get you to heaven because there are no minimal entry requirements to heaven. You either put your faith and trust fully in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you, and he will save you, or you put your trust in anything else, and you will be hopeless when you stand before him. You should absolutely fear him. Because Jesus has the power and the authority to condemn you to hell forever. But it turns out the one who can condemn you is the same one who came for you. It's the same one who loves you. He's the same one who did the work necessary to forgive you and redeem you. He's the same one who is pursuing you and calling out to you. And he's the only one who can save you. So stop pretending you're okay. You're not. Stop acting like you can be your own answer. You can't. Stop trusting in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. Find life and life eternal in the one who defeated death. And when you do, here's the great promise. You too will defeat death. John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. That's what we celebrate today. The death has been defeated the promise of a glorious reunion with all those in Christ who have gone before us, the joyous realization that pain and suffering and misery and injustice and racism and oppression and illness and tragedy and death will not get the final say, that there is a future reality waiting for us when all those things will be no more, and all of it is possible because our God and King faced our death for us and then rose from the grave. And if Jesus is yours today and you are his, and we simply invite you to join us in celebrating that victory, reveling in that hope, worshiping his splendor, and sharing his grace with those who need it. And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, we simply ask you, would you today? Will you join the ranks of those who found life, found eternal life in Jesus, because it can be found nowhere else? I'm gonna ask you to join me for some prayer. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to I want to talk to to three specific groups before I launch in this prayer because I want to pray for you if you're in one of these groups today. The resurrection was a moment. We celebrate that moment today because it was a single moment that changed everything for all eternity. And what you have before you this morning is a moment that can match it. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is available to us and it stands at the ready to perform a spiritual resurrection today. Today can be the day that changes everything for you. And so if you grew up in church, if you believed in Jesus, but then you've since fallen away, you cannot say honestly that you're following him in any way. In fact, maybe this is the first time you've been back to church in a while. Today can be your day that you come back. 
This can be the moment you turn from what you're living for and come back to the resurrected king. I will, you could say, I want to rededicate my life to falling after you. I've gotten lost. I've went astray. I want this to be my moment to come home to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've never been baptized and you, you've believed in him, but you've never taken that first step of obedience. This can be your moment of decision and commitment that you're going to follow that through, that you're going to be baptized to bring him glory and honor and share what he's done in your life. Or maybe you've never believed. And up to this point, you've done your own thing. You've been your own solution. You've tried to be your own God. This moment can change everything for you. God is calling out to you. He's reaching out to you. He's drawing you to himself. And the question is, will you surrender your life to Jesus? Will you believe and put your trust in him and his death and resurrection to save you? If you're in any of those three groups, I'm going to pray for you now. And I want you to follow what we do in the prayer. Father, we are grateful. We're over abundantly joyful and grateful for the empty tomb of Jesus. We're grateful because it, it proves once and for all who he is. We're grateful because it, it buys for us an eternal future that nothing can take away. We're grateful because it opens salvation to our souls. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in our midst who would identify as someone who's, who's fallen away, there used to be a vibrant faith in their life. But they've fallen away. Lord, would this be their moment that they turn back? This would be their moment. They would say to you, God, I'm, I'm tired of running from you. I want to run towards you. I want to rededicate my life to living for you now. And Lord, if there's anybody in our midst who's, who's never taken that step of obedience, the step that, that, that brings you such glory of, of being baptized and sharing the, the, the grace that you have poured out in our lives, would this moment be the moment they say, you know what, I need to do that. I need to follow through. After everything you've done for me, Lord, I need to do this for you. May they commit to seeking us out and finding us and getting that taken care of. But Lord, I and everybody in here who knows the grace of Jesus join together in praying for the soul who walked into this room today or joined this stream today having never known your love, having never known your grace, having never known your salvation. The soul that came in bound for hell, the soul that came in having your wrath stored up and waiting for them, the soul that came in trying to be their own God and their own solution, and would today they turn from all that foolishness, surrender their life and their belief and their trust to you. God, would they just simply say to you now, God, I believe, I believe you died for me, I believe you rose again, I ask that you forgive me and take over. You meet them where they are, cover them in your grace and save their soul in this moment. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Let's sing one last song together in response this morning.